Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. the lands of the Turrbal and the Yagara peoples that I'm standing on today and would like to pay respects to the sacred knowledge the elders and traditional owners share with us. My name is Georgia and I'm a student of social work. I'm passionate about animal rights and how we view animals compared to humans in society. My pronouns are she and her. I'm with Heather Fraser today. How are you Heather? I'm good, thank you Georgia. That's good. Um, I'm just going to ask you some questions around your pedagogy, around critical animal studies. Firstly, um, could you share with me a little bit more about your background and critical animal studies? Well, as some people will know who I've taught, I've been, well, I've been teaching three decades now, so I've taught lots of students and I'm a critical social worker. So what that means is I'm interested in how we construct social problems and how power relations um, pulsate through everything, um, how the oppressed get treated compared to people with privilege. Um, and of course, there's this concept of intersectionality and um, that's really important to me. And for me as a vegan um, and an animal rights uh, supporter, for me, speciesism is the, the missing piece for true intersectionality. Um, and without that piece, I think we're still um, myopic in terms of excluding animals. So uh, I came from just in terms of um, my practice experience. Um, I started in um, women's shelters, um, youth shelter, so residential care kind of stuff, responding to people who'd fled violence. Um, and I'm a survivor myself, so um, as, and all through my career, the, the idea of um, anti-violence has been really crucial in campaigning, in what I write and so forth. And in the last 10 years or more, um, anti-violence has really uh, moved into human-animal relations. Um, and here, there's a field called human-animal studies. Um, and that's a very broad field and it comes, people have very different opinions. So for instance, they human animal studies conferences might be held at say SeaWorld and the dinners might, they might be eating steak. Whereas from a critical animal um, studies point of view, that's ridiculous, um, you know, cause don't talk about peace and anti-violence if there's dead meat on your plate. So some yeah. people, of course, are going to be listening to this and thinking, oh, no, the, she's talking about meat eating already. And I suppose <laughs> there's, um, it's really easy to switch off and to think, oh, no, you know, it's 
just the food chain. I can't do anything about it. Social work's got no relationship to that. But I do ask people to just remain open to the prospect that how we relate to animals has a lot to do with who we are as a society and, uh, and how we're going to function now and in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear you talk about this concept of intersectionality. And I was just wondering what that means um, when we're talking about, you know, our, is it our relation to animals? Um, what do you mean by that? Intersectionality is a concept that Kimberly Crenshaw, a black feminist, came up with in the 80s. And um, it's really um, she was trying to get at how racism, sexism and other isms like classism interlocked. So say I come from a working class background and I'm a woman, but I'm a white woman. So in, And it's not a zero-sum game. It's in just in practical terms... So I get white privilege. I walk the streets, people don't bat an eyelid, they don't call out, hey, white person, they don't call, you know, they don't disparage me. But as a woman, um, you know, I am at risk of being abused largely by men um, because of misogyny and heteronormativities. And these are all terms that if we're if we're thinking about it in practical terms, it's really about who has been able to exert their dominance over others historically. And even though individuals might be good and well-intentioned, um, I might not be personally racist, I'd like to think I'm not, but, um, is, but I still enjoy the history of white domination. Uh, yeah. People still make assumptions about that. And so... Intersectionality tries to get at how, um, say, hierarchies really interrelate. Um, and as I had said just earlier, is that the big question for me now and some others is how does speciesism or the domination by humans over animals, how does that relate to the notion of intersectionality, which is ultimately pointing at equality, at freedom, at a sense of non-dominating relationships yeah absolutely so when you talk about this speciesism is that kind of where your interest in critical animal studies approach came from or did that come later um oh they're tied together um but if i tell you how i really moved into the whole area of of animal studies first and foremost um was, I mean, it's funny because as a social worker, many of us love animals, really interested in animals, but I'd always kept it to the side like most social workers have historically. And then through a sort of um, series of coincidence, um, but one, there was a trigger point and that was that um, the ABC, Australian Broadcasting Commission, did an expose on, uh, with Sarah Ferguson was the journalist on live exports. And so what had happened was I watched this with absolute horror, um, the, the treatment of animals, and it was largely overseas, in, um, in you know, um, developing or, or impoverished nations. And there was all this horror that I felt. It was very interesting because there's, um, 
I thought, well, while some of the focus is on overseas practices, how different are they really here? And uh, then fast forward a couple of years and uh, my husband started to work as in, in an abattoir as a slaughterhouse worker. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah. things and the, the knives and in a very sort of 1950s one in a little country town or outside the country town because abattoirs or slaughterhouses are always put, secreted away so we don't have to view them. Because what's that saying? That if we, if they had glass walls in the middle of the city, we would have a very different relationship to what we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was on the front line of slaughter for three and a half years. And during that period, I watched him personally get crippled by the work. The, um, the bloodied knives would come home. The bloodied clothes, of course, would come home. So I'd go into the laundry and it was really confronting. And at this time, I'm meat eating. I'm being what's called in Australian terms normal. Um, mm. You know, I'm meat eating. I'm uh, eating dairy, drink, consuming dairy with gay abandon. And, um, and so my interest in human-animal studies, so that really shocked me. Um, but I still felt in that quandary that a lot of people feel like, oh, I don't want to make changes. Oh, no, I don't want to become one of those vegans. Oh, no, I push it away. So um, it, was, it was slow. It was gradual. Um, it was like a drip, drip, drip. Um, I always thought, oh, I couldn't not eat dairy. That's ridiculous. Because I'd been vegetarian for many years in the past. And um, um, so Ultimately, I started researching in the space of companion animals and social work or assisted animals. And that's a fairly innocent area that most people, well, that's what it's assumed to be, that, um, you know, you can't object to a beautiful golden retriever supporting someone with a mobility impairment, you know. So that's really how it sort of started. And, and bit by bit, I went to conferences, read more, got involved with, worked with my great um collaborator and mentor in this space, Nick Taylor, who's a professor in New Zealand. She's been in this space for a long time. And, and she was really patient with me. Um, and more and more, I entered the world of animal rights. And it's really a shocking world. And I see why so many people don't want to look into that world, like animal testing, some of the regimes, just to say cosmetics, something, you know. Um, that it's a very confronting world. And yet it reminded me of when I was in the um, 80s um, around how the public treated domestic violence and child abuse. There was a lot of, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to see it. You know, we had to work really hard, most, mostly feminists and our supporters, but um, to really get people to appreciate this wasn't just a private issue behind closed right. doors. Whereas people, younger generations would think, oh, well, of course it's a public issue. You know, of course it, it matters that one woman, for instance, a week's being murdered by a man. Um, and it's not, that's not to say there isn't violence among um, people in same-sex relationships, people who are gender diverse and so forth. Um, yeah. We've done some work in that space with uh, colleagues. Um, so... Intersectionality, if we keep coming back to that, it helps us think through how are people and animals uh, treated on the basis of assumptions about their categorisation. 
and yeah. animals are categorised in, in a way that we are separated from humans. I mean, reality is humans are animals too. We're all animals. But when you really dig into violence, what you'll see is there's the thing called the link between human and animal violence. And, um, you know, is it surprising, for instance, that abattoir workers are more inclined to enact violence in the home? And bear in mind, abattoir workers are largely from impoverished, downtrodden areas um, with fewer opportunities. I mean, let's, let's face it, who really puts their hand up to be an abattoir's worker over other kinds of work? It's some of the most sullied work that there is. And I think we often denigrate abattoirs workers to, because we assume that they're responsible. There's something barbaric about them for doing the job when, in fact, plenty of people down the line are happy to have what they produce. Yeah. So, um, so if we tie that back to some of the things that I know that you're, you're interested in is, well, how does this all relate to social work? Yeah. Um, and I think social works, at the heart of social work is social justice. So what does that mean? Does that say only human justice? Um, social justice, and when we, I really want to say, it's a simple point, but we're social workers and, that, and the social world has lots of components. It's not just psychological or interpersonal. It's structural, it's systemic, it's um, cultural, it's, uh, it's all of those dimensions and it involves relationships between humans and animals. And many of our clients who are doing it really tough, they understand the importance of human-animal relationships. And many of our clients are, um, who are homeless or who are recovering from trauma and so forth, um, they don't need any convincing about the power of human relationships. Mm. So... There's a whole lot of resonance for social workers. And as we move into more and more creative practices, practices that aren't just a clinical setting where people, an expert talks to this patient and diagnoses them or pathologizes mm. them or puts them in a box. Um, there's more and more experimentation, whether it's equine therapies, other kinds of outdoor activities that enable people who've been hurt or injured in some way to reconnect with themselves and a world outside themselves that gives them joy. And that's really important in trauma recovery. Yeah. And it, it sounds like from, from what I'm hearing that there's, there's not like a clear cut answer to how this has impacted your practice. It's like become part of the way you view the world. And therefore like there's no, there might be some specific examples mm -hmm. where you've used it, but it's also just kind of changed your lens. Everything. Yeah. It's changed everything. And, um, mm -hmm. and if you think about climate change, the most urgent social problem that we have on the planet, um, then human animal studies come, like I, I really promote green social work. Um, and I think that um, green social work, interestingly enough, pioneered, you know, developed mostly by Lena Dominelli and others. Um, they don't really touch human-animal relationships. And my guess is because they're meat and dairy eaters. Often it comes down to that simple, it's that simple. People don't, and I, I understand that I came from that past. So 
what happens is then there's a huge piece that's missing in climate change. Like we saw at the Glasgow conference and um, our deputy leader, Barnaby Joyce, wanting to excise methane from the carbon emissions. Um, and methane's largely associated with gas production, but also um, uh, livestock, so-called, or uh, intensive agriculture. Uh, and never mind all the others. So meat is an issue we cannot keep ignoring. Oh, it's just because the argument, oh, that's my choice. And I get it, and I, I, I will never say to you, you should become vegan, right? I, mm. I took a long time to get there, but what I will say is, you have to really think. You have to stop being blinded to the, the links between, um, climate change and its catastrophic events that we're seeing, intensive animal agriculture, what we eat, how we use water and how we practice social work, because all of these are all tied in together. We're going to be working with our social workers, climate refugees in the future, much mm. more. There's a whole range of groups now that, because um, the, the downtrodden, the most oppressed, live in the poorest areas most affected by the disasters. They're the least benefit, they, they benefit the least from mining and from some of these big corporate activities. And yet they're experiencing the most catastrophic events and over time and if you think about Pacific Islands and their communities there they're literally losing their lands you started with an acknowledgement of Indigenous people which is really important but we need to do more than that we need to think about how we're we treating our neighbours um, yeah. how can they even practice culture if they have to move off their lands yeah. how can they practice culture in their traditional ways um, and you know, people might say, well, you're talking about veganism and what about traditional, uh, say, Indigenous cultures and their relationship to um, meat and, uh, you know, seafood? It was very different, though. It was very different to the ex exploitation that occurs today, isn't it? It is. It's, and it's like, oh, it's, it's such a red herring, you know, um, it's, speaking of fish, um, that it's such a... Um, nonsensical thing to do because species extinction and climate change isn't being generated by our indigenous populations you know we're not widespread cruelty uh, for the most part animal cruelty isn't being perpetrated by our indigenous populations it's just a deflection so that we as dominant westerners don't have to look at how we behave. Oh, you know, well, you can't. Yeah, so, you sh so you're saying that they can't do their traditional practices. No, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm just saying we need to reevaluate our relationships with animals. And Indigenous cultures historically have been very good at understanding having a sacred relationship with particular animals. And then Australian Indigenous groups have tribal affiliations with various animal totems and so forth. There's a long history of that. So we've lots to learn from Indigenous cultures about how to relate to animals. Yeah, we've lots absolutely. to learn for how to, how to deal with the threat of bushfire from Indigenous practices of burning. We've got lots to learn, but often what we don't do as the dominant groups is that we just often pluck and appropriate bits that we like the sound of and take as our own, but we don't do that deep learning. And that, because that can often mean a paradigm shift is needed, you know, a whole shift of different way of thinking. Yeah. 
and I guess that brings me into my next question, Heather, which is this critical animal approach really sounds like the next step to kind of bringing your critical theory lens from a social work perspective into practice, but it might be difficult for some people to apply this in a professional or an academic setting. Um, is this a misconception that I have or is, or is this actually possible? I think I think it's a really good question. I think it's quite complex because on the one hand, um, will you look into seek.com and find a job that says critical animal um, study social worker? Um, highly unlikely. Um, but there are increasing jobs um, surprise, in the animal therapy space, animal assisted space. Um, UK and US have got a much stronger um, history of developing some of the animal assisted um, and Australia has animal therapies um, association with more members than you probably imagine doing lots of really interesting work. So I think there are, are opportunities, but they're not necessarily laid out like child protection. Um, I think uh, it, some of it affects the way you view the world, the way you view clients, uh, the way uh, you approach your task. And it's been through lots of social workers, for instance, who say have worked in the homeless space or residential care and so forth, who weren't meant to count the animals that their clients cared about, but have. They, sometimes they did workarounds, they've done all sorts of things. So lots of social workers are really well primed. Um, we're a um, profession that I think can really promote kindness that's paired with justice so it's not just charity and so I think there's many possibilities but it is still a developing space so if you're looking for a sort of quick career thing critical animal studies is not your um ticket to a you know well-paid job no no but but there's ways that we could probably use this theory in existing uh -huh. workplaces, right? Is, is that possible? Even if you, I mentioned child protection, if you, and that's mm. a really dominant place. You know, even if you think back historically, children were treated like animals, like property, taken a long time to um, develop a child protection system. Um, and there's been this whole child rescue movement, and that's had some all sorts of pernicious consequences, like stolen generations. So we've got we also could be part of generating this new field and this um the code of ethics the latest code of ethics 2020 for australia and the new zealand one i think it was a 2019 one both now mention animals for the first time so this is a growing area and i think you're going to see more of it and i think you're going to see some social workers who really do some fantastic work in it and i'm working with some people who are developing for instance um networks of, of social workers uh, and materials to promote animals in social work from a range of perspectives, not just critical, but um, that's, of course, the perspective that I bring. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Heather Fraser, for speaking with me today about your approach to practice. And it sounds like for your life as well, mm -hmm. um, that it's really changed. So um, I hope to see uh, growth in this area as well of critical animal studies and particularly within the social work field it'd be great to see where this can go in the future and within any field it'd be great to have this perspective as well so thank you so much for speaking with me today that's a and, pleasure uh, thank you for your time
you'd like to keep up with any of our socials and to continue listening to future episodes, please follow us on Instagram. That's Critical Conversations, the number four SW.